Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about originating moments in relationships. Before I get into the specifics of what might be one of the most personal episodes I've ever recorded, I want to deal a little bit with some of the events of the past week. You see, as an Orthodox Christian, the past week has been fairly challenging for me, because someone who I consider to be a holder of extremely aberrant views, I don't know whether to call this person a heretic or not, I certainly am very comfortable referring to Harold Camping as a false prophet, After all, how many times do you have to predict the end of the world in the history of your, quote, ministry, unquote, over several decades before the world stops listening to you? And it seems to me that the only people in the world who really have paid much attention to this prediction about the end of the world made most recently by camping are people who don't believe anyway. It's made for great sport. And in the midst of some of the hubbub and some of the conversation, a friend of mine sent a link to me that was put on Facebook by a group that I have now become somewhat interested in, a group called Christians Tired of Being Misinterpreted. Here is kind of how they ID themselves on Facebook. If you are a Christian who is sick and tired of being misinterpreted by those portrayed in the media as Christians, those who proclaim themselves as Christians yet speak and act in ways that do not represent who we are as Christians, Join us as we expose the distortions, bigotry, and absence of love. And they have an article that they've placed on Facebook called Frustrated by the Misuse of Christianity. I can't imagine a more appropriate week for this post to have come up. It's written with a dateline of May 14th. And from an authorship perspective, as far as I can tell, it's simply identified as being part of this Facebook group, Christians Tired of Being Misrepresented, which I've actually seen in comments, people refer to it as CTOBM. Um, I guess that's just what you do, right? Here is the article uh, to get us started on this question of originating relationships. And it's not necessarily as off course as you might think, because although I'm going to deal with personal human relationships, I may as well start with this question of the relationship between a Christian and God and the way Christians should have relationship with the world. So here's this article. I love Jesus Christ. I know the Holy Spirit is my comforter, counselor, and the conduit of God. Do I believe with my whole heart that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived to die, died to free us from sin, and now sits at the right hand of God? Yes, yes, yes. I am a Christian, damn it. Why should I feel ashamed? Why should I flee the very thing that has carried me through two divorces, helped me raise my children while keeping my sanity, lifted me up while I was at my lowest point. I cannot deny the supernatural strength and peace that I've experienced while reading the Bible. I cannot deny that God has spoken to me deep inside my spirit. That voice instructed me to do things that others said didn't make sense, but in the end protected me from bitterness and things that would have otherwise destroyed me. I am a Christian, damn it. Why should I feel ashamed? Have leaders of my faith abused their position by using the precious message of Jesus Christ to bring condemnation to their listeners? Yes. Do politicians use their Christian faith to polarize people with moral issues? 
Yes. Oh, I am so sorry. I'm sorry that men have misused and abused you while holding up a banner that says, I'm a Christian. Should I throw away what is part of me? Is it okay if I tell those guys, hey, you idiots, you do not represent me, and still say that I am what they claim to be, a Christian? All I can do, and all we as Christians can do, is begin to represent Jesus Christ in the right way. We need to stop arguing about whether homosexuality is a sin and start loving people because they are human beings. We need to stop debating whether abortion is right or wrong and start exercising the true meaning of grace. Grace for a pregnant woman contemplating abortion and grace for a woman who chose abortion. What really matters is how we treat a woman. We need to stop throwing our theocracy around like it's a gavel to the world and start acting and speaking in ways that draw people to Jesus Christ, that same Jesus who showed us mercy and grace. I am a Christian, damn it, a follower of the way, the truth, and the life. I respect others who do not follow my Christian faith and choose another faith. It's okay if they don't believe the same way. We should respect one another and show grace. I am a Christian. Am I willing to keep that label even if I am persecuted for it? Yes. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I am ashamed of is hypocrisy and hate by unchristlike men and women whose behavior does not represent Christian. Why should I be ashamed just because a few like Pat Robertson, James Dobson, Sarah Palin, Ralph E. Reed Jr., and people like that continue to sit in large Christian airplanes, ramming them into tall buildings we call society, destroying people and lives? Why should extremists control the whole body of believers? Should the few who are racist, homophobic, radical pro-life murderer, pro-warmonger Christians overshadow the rest of us? who love, accept, embrace, and do not judge. No. I stand here today firmly on the fact that I am a Christian, a follower of the man named Christ who healed the sick, embraced the forsaken, sat with the sinner, ate with the cheater, associated with those that society rejected. That is the Christ I am named after. That is the writings of Christians tired of being misrepresented. Uh, not my words. Uh, I haven't been divorced twice. I have a different life experience than the author of this work. And the author of this work finished his uh, blog post with a prayer. This is something that I haven't done maybe only once so far in this, but I think I will share this prayer uh, in the interest of kind of fully covering what this website's all about. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, through your Holy Spirit, give us the courage and strength to speak out against our modern-day Pharisees, but speak out in a way that stands out from them, not acts like them. Give us the wisdom and insight to find ways to express your unconditional love, your amazing grace, that peace that passes all earthly understanding. Give us a voice in the midst of chaos, hatred, hypocrisy, greed, a voice that cries out in the wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and be not ashamed. Amen. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. 
Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. To me, that posting is important, not just because of the timeliness of it, coming near enough to May 21st, 2011, which was just the latest in a long string of quote-unquote Christian prophecies about when the world will come to an end, all of which fly directly in the face of the actual words of Jesus Christ, who said both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, we're not going to know the day or the hour. The other reason that it's appropriate, though, is to this topic of those originating moments of intimacy, because it's going to tie into both the things I wanted to share about my relationship with my wife and also things that I wanted to share about my relationship with the Lord. Both of these connect back to that notion of saying, hey, when all is said and done, when the false prophets have come in and done all of their damage, when the world has dismissed Christianity as a whole because of these, well, people that this one group describes as idiots. I can't really argue with them. They're not wrong. Uh, they, may, they may have used harsh words, but they're not wrong. When the world has decided that Christianity is nothing more than this group of cultists and dismisses it, what's left? Well, what's left are those originating moments. And let me kind of word it this way, kind of referring back to Hebrew scriptures and a, pa a passage right in the middle of the book of Exodus that's really echoed, again, in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, where the Hebrew people have escaped, and they have seen miraculous things in the process of getting away from Egypt. Because initially, uh, Pharaoh lets them go, but if you've seen the movie Ten Commandments, you probably have at least a Hollywood image of what that escape might have looked like. Uh, I say a Hollywood image in the sense that perhaps it was... Uh, exaggerated some for a movie blockbuster, or perhaps, you know, downplayed by the limitations of special effects. Hard to say. But this is a group of people who have passed through a body of water that they didn't think that they could pass through, through some miraculous sign, and have also seen their enemies drown in that very body of water. So they've seen some things that would leave an impression on you. And yet they're in the middle of the wilderness, uh, being stuck there for quite some time because of their attitude. Moses describes them as being people that God is viewing as being unworthy of the promised land because of their grumbling, because of their negativity. And here they are saying that they were better off back in slavery, where at least they were fed because they're worried about the kind of food that they may be able to find and the quantity of food that such a large traveling tribe of uh, literally thousands of people could find in the wilderness. And uh, Moses speaks with the Lord, as is recorded in the book of Exodus, and they are granted this literal, this literal food from heaven called manna. And this manna is there to serve their immediate daily needs and keep them healthy and alive for their trip through the wilderness, which, of course, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, with Hebrew scripture, turns out to be a 40-year journey, right? So during this 40-year journey, they are provided food in some ways, if you're using you know, colorful literary language, yeah, provided food from the very hand of God. And yet, as you get into the history section of the Old Testament, the books that follow uh, from Joshua, trying to record the life and times of this group of people, it doesn't take long for the Hebrew people who have seen miraculous signs escaping from Egypt and miraculous signs surviving in the wilderness, uh, get to the promised land and forget 
what they'd experienced, no longer appreciate the origins of their getting to that point in time. It's as if they were fed at the very hand of God and then forgot about the meal. And that's kind of the, the point that I, I want to make here is that I've asked myself this question, kind of looking at this section to say, you know what, maybe there's some human nature here. The writer of that article referred to being divorced more than once. I can't imagine being divorced once. But again, maybe there's something in human nature that says, you know what, I have a short-term expectation of what's to come and a short-term memory of what's happened. And if my short-term memory says good things, then I'm happy and satisfied no matter what happened before then. And if my short-term memory is upsetting or makes me angry or makes me dissatisfied, then I'm going to chuck an entire relationship, even a miraculous relationship based on the most recent events. It would literally be the same thing as me saying, I'm going to disassociate myself from the church because of people that I disagree with, like Harold Camping or this other list. Uh, the writer of this uh, article for the Christians tired of being misrepresented is not wrong to cite uh, his arguments against people like Pat Robertson and James Dobson, Sarah Palin and, and others. These are legitimate people to have a problem with and legitimate to question whether or not they represent what Christianity truly says. So do you leave Christianity in the hands of those people who don't seem to represent it properly at all? Or do you say no? I've got a longer term memory than that. I'm connecting all the way back to the beginning. And that if I have been fed from the very hand of God, I am going to cherish that memory. And that's a lot of what I wanted kind of to speak about today. Now, today is not the day when I'm going to go in and say, hey, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when did that kick in? When did that step up a notch? When did I stop and take notice of that in a way that wasn't academic? It wasn't from you know studies in high school or college. It wasn't from a confirmation class in church. It was real in a way that nothing else I could probably describe would be more real than that. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to save it for another day, perhaps even another year. But when I do get to that point of talking a little bit about that experience that I've had, the most important thing is, how would you forget that? If you feel that you have heard the direction of the Lord himself through the Holy Spirit, through answered prayer, through whatever, and you have seen the results of that in a way that is close enough to miraculous that it's splitting hairs to call it a difference, why would you forget it? Well, I don't know. Why did the Hebrew people forget what God had done for them, bringing them out of Egypt, protecting them from the pursuit of the Egyptians who've changed their mind, or just giving them the food and water they needed? Uh, food you know, miraculously appearing overnight as manna from heaven, water gushing out from a rock in a desert. How would you forget all that? And maybe it takes effort to not forget. Maybe it takes a certain amount of will, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it takes a certain amount of will to forget, to say, yeah, I know my confirmation experience. I know my church membership. I know my experience of the sacraments, but I'm going to walk away anyway, because I can't stand to be associated even one more minute with the Jerry Falwells and Pat Robertsons of the world. That makes me sad. So I guess in the midst of the storm here and these recent current events, I've gotten in the habit of referring to myself as faithful, faithful to the Bible in a way that some of these other folks simply are not. 
the Bible does not refer in any direct or any even indirect way to a pre-tribulational rapture. I know the moment somebody talks about rapture, not as the second coming of Christ and the end of the world as we know it and the beginning of a new heaven and a new earth, but instead as some sort of a paradigm where it's going to lead in a separation where where the good people are taken out of the world and everyone else is left behind. The ones that are left behind sort of talk comes into it. I know I'm dealing with fiction. I know I'm dealing with something that isn't consistent with what Jesus described in Matthew chapter 24, where he was talking about the end of the Jewish era, the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem itself, the diaspora of the Jews. It doesn't connect with anything Paul said in the letters to Thessalonica, because in the letters First and Second Thessalonians, he is talking about the second coming of Christ, the end of the world as we know it. And it's not something that's going to be secret. It's going to be something that's going to be unmistakable. And of course, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the book of Revelations. I won't get into that today. That topic is complex enough that it would require a show unto itself. And I'm not 100% sure that I'm the guy to do that show. If I hear that show on another podcast, I'll share it with you then and direct you to it. It's enough to say, though, that I feel it's important to be faithful, faithful to what the Holy Spirit has said, faithful to what the Bible really says, and not confuse the modern parlance, not to confuse a new paradigm, a new age paradigm, truthfully, a new age Christian paradigm that's been in place for almost 200 years now, uh, beginning in Europe, but having a great stronghold here in the United States that I'm going to be faithful to something bigger than that, more original than that. And I heard a conversation once, an interview, I believe, on a radio show, perhaps even the Bible Answer Man radio broadcast, where the stepson of C.S. Lewis was asked in an interview about C.S. Lewis in relation to a biography that was going out and the production work being done on what was going to turn into the Chronicles of Narnia films, the original one in particular. And during that interview... He made a statement that C.S. Lewis had been faithful to his wife, and he kind of stopped as an aside and said, what does it mean when we say faithful to your wife? Douglas Gresham handled it this way. He referred to a man who was faithful to his wife their whole lives long and asked if that statement really only meant that the man acknowledged his wife's existence. Let me say that again. Does being faithful to your wife mean that you only acknowledge her existence? That you consistently maintain throughout your entire lifetime that there is such a person as your wife and that she's real? Faith is not just a general belief that God exists. Faith is a motivating conviction that Jesus is Lord and that the way of Christ is worth the risks and that with God all things are possible. Faithfulness. I have faith in what Christ says and not in what the current soup of the day political leader or televangelist has to say. And I also, in a strange way, have faith in my wife, faith in our relationship, because there's a motivating conviction there as well that goes all the way back to the very beginning, in this case, the very beginning of our relationship. Truthfully, the thing I really wanted to share today, above everything else, aside from the distraction of predictions of the world coming to an end and other things, was a poem that deals with 
my relationship with my wife and how the, all of that started. And I think I want to provide a little bit of context. This poem is more than 10 years old now, and it was written kind of around the time of her birthday, not necessarily around the time of anniversary. But I'm coming up upon a pretty important relationship milestone now. And it's natural, I think, when you're heading toward some of these big numbers that you look back in retrospect, because a, a number like 30, coming up on the 30th anniversary of my first date with my wife, um, and a relationship that has a very seamless through path from there. It's not that there were no moments during the course of that relationship that we weren't separated uh, by university and other things, but there were rel relatively few moments, even of dating other people, where those other dates were in any way serious. So really, throughout that point of time, having met when we were in our teens, it's really been one solid stream. And now, a stream of 30 years, if you go back to the point of the very first date. So what had happened was around the time of my 10th year reunion in high school, I'm not a big fan of high school reunions. And really, in my uh, reflection upon my 10th year high school reunion, I, I did some writing about it, did some journaling about it. And the biggest issue was that sometimes you go to those and you're, you're expecting to see some people that you know you're going to see. You know, they, they live in town. Uh, something really odd would have to keep them from being there because it requires almost no effort or planning for them to attend, short of, you know, holding the weekend off and saying, yeah, this is what I'm going to do that weekend. They don't have a journey to make. Not the same kind of journey that somebody would have to make if they were traveling from California or the Carolinas. So you have that group of people, but there's this other group of people that you kind of hope you see. That if you're going to go to a reunion and travel across the country to get there, you're going to want to see the people that you think you're less likely to see. It's not unlike what I described a couple of weeks ago. When I go to a rock concert, I hold in the back of my head a couple of songs from the band I really want to hear them play, that it's not a sure thing they will perform live in concert, because it's not a top 40 song, it's not a hit, it hasn't become part of the, you know, the iconology of them as a band, so it would really be kind of a lark if they played it. Same thing with the reunion. So with my reunion experience, I didn't have a perfect time. I saw some of the people I really wanted to see, and that was great. I had some conversations with people I didn't expect to see. That was even better. But there were some folks who were missing. And when I was looking back on that experience, compiling a few journal notes together, I decided to give it a name. And what I called it was Past Tenths. T-E-N-T-H-S, past the 10th anniversary, getting through that experience, but uh, past tense being also a, an English pun, right? A, a grammatical pun. And from, from that experience, I noticed that really I could turn a lot of the things that were going on in my head from one passage to another, one journal entry to another into math. And it would be math that would mean something to me, but probably not to anybody else. But mathematical formulas that would sort of represent the feeling I had where maybe one side of the equation didn't balance to the other, or maybe there was a negative that was negating some aspect of it, or, you know, something related to pi, what have you. Um, that's just sort of the way I work, right? So I had a mathematical name for that reunion essay. And a year later, I went to my wife's high school reunion, and I had an essay after that one as well that I'll share on another day, that I wasn't expecting to have any thoughts about that, because I really only knew a few people, relatively smaller number of people. But it came back with one there as well. But in this uh, poem that I want to share, a poem that I wrote to my wife for my wife and about our relationship, I named it Where 16 Equals Forever. And obviously, if I was doing this mathematically, I would write it mathematically, probably using infinity instead of forever, but actually having um, numeric 16 and equal sign the whole nine yards. Because I do think of these things in, in a mathematical way, that there's a given 
And I don't know if you can keep yourself happily comfortable with whatever formulaic result you're getting at any one point in your life if you've lost touch with what the givens are, if you don't understand the parameters of what X equals, even if you've decided nothing more than to let X equal X. So in this case, where 16 equals forever, let me just share it and then I'll comment to it. When we first met, I had not been driving yet for a year. So much was new, and so little of it was intimidating. In 1980, it was not legal for a 16-year-old to buy a beer, or for that matter, a bottle of slow gin, which I would pronounce S-L-O-W, in a manner that would have been correct if I had understood that nothing about the name intended to imply that the drink lacked swiftness. You walk into a liquor store, barely bearded, attempting to make a purchase. If you succeed, you drink. If you fail, you leave. That's all. You leave. Likewise, driving that first year after obtaining a permit is all about freedom, including freedom from responsibility. It wasn't my insurance or car payment or even gasoline. After years of being shuttled around, I was finally free to be the driver. The list of 15-year-old friends needing my services would include you within the year. When we first met on Christmas Eve, you were too young even for a permit. If you didn't want to watch your family build a new pool table before Santa had an opportunity to deliver it, you had to come with me. Both our age and our presumed freedom made it impossible to realize how that chance meeting would change our lives forever. Retrospect forces me to acknowledge that the four months which passed between our contacts were nothing more than a subtitle on a narrative reading four months later. Four months later would turn into the rest of my life. Four months later would turn into the rest of your life. How much was altered by jumping significantly past those months? Did I exist on April Fool's Day of 1981? Did you? Fair question. Because the person I was on that day would be forever changed three weeks later by you. Had someone told me at age 16, when so little of the world was intimidating, that I had met the only woman in the world, I surely would have been intimidated by the thought. It's lovely how truth occurs in mysterious ways. Somehow, by making the unreal seem pointless and dull, while making the real seem safe, natural, inevitable. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. I'll have some commentary about that poem, but I won't go into great detail. Before I do, though, I want to kind of tie that back to the original thought that I had and that I could probably write a similar poem and direct it to my relationship with the Lord in some ways that goes on forever, that I, I believe in eternity, which doesn't just mean that I believe that there's an afterlife. I believe there's a before as well. And that's, I think, something that I've mentioned before that Christians often miss, that there is too much sort of modern conservative Christian political ideology built into the moment of conception, which would be just as wrong as if we're built into the moment of birth. Because the scripture that Christians tend to quote to justify the magic of conception refers to moments well before then. 
So I believe in forever going in both directions. Again, mathematically, if you were doing this as geometry, you'd have a line with arrows pointing both left and right. That an array where there's a fixed point on the dot and an arrow pointing forever in one direction isn't really infinite. It's got a finite starting point, and I frankly don't accept that idea. But I won't go there, because first off, it would require me to add the distraction of pointing to another point in my life where there was this intersection and an experience. It's enough now to focus on this one particular thing, because that's where the 30 years come in. And where I'm looking back over 30 years, some things really strike me as being kind of odd. First off, I'm being really honest here in this poem about what it was like, even during the time right before Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the Reagan administration just went absolutely nuts and changed the paradigm forever. That really, the onus was never, when I was a kid, on the kid. If you went in to try to obtain alcohol illegally, the consequences were 100% for the store and 0% for you. I thought maybe at one point I would have hit a nostalgia show and kind of talked about this in even more detail. And I've pushed that off. I'll get to it later if I decide to put it back into the schedule at some point. But I think this really captures that idea pretty well, that if I'm going to be shuttling around a girl that I've just met and a friend of mine who's younger than me, who's dating that girl and you know looking to be nothing more than the, the taxi driver, Back then, it didn't seem as monumentally stupid as it does today, or as obviously stupid as it does today, to be drinking while driving. And, of course, the only way as a 16-year-old you can drink by driving is to obtain alcohol illegally to do it. But the consequences were very different back then. I've mentioned online before, just kind of talking with friends, that one of the reasons that I really have always liked Christmas Eve as much as Christmas Day when it comes to my emotional connection with holidays is because Christmas Eve was this occasion. It was not Christmas morning when uh, me and a friend of mine went to um, pick up his girlfriend and drive around and do something other than the family activities between church services. I, again, most of my life have gone to a couple of church services, both a 7-ish start time and a 11 start time, so that one of the services would end at midnight. But the other service would be early enough that families with kids who couldn't stay awake that long or kids that you didn't want to stay awake that long could go. And it was in between those two services that I had this time on my hands. But the number one thing that led me to, to go on that trip was a lot of times if my family was going to be entertaining, if people were coming over Christmas morning to celebrate, things would always just get a little bit tense and a little bit crazy that as a kid, you know, and even at 16 years old, you're still kind of a kid. If I'm going to be hanging around my house, killing some time, I'm going to be making a mess. I'm going to be taking albums out, putting them on the record player. I'm going to be folding a piece of paper into a football and practicing you know, field goals and extra points and you know, stuff with my brother. I'm going to be doing things that's going to drive my parents nuts, especially if they want the house to stay, quote unquote, perfect. And when we went over to pick up my wife or my future wife, she was in the same boat. Um, it was Christmas Eve. Christmas Day was going to be all about new new gifts. And the big new gift that year was a pool table. But the pool table was going to come, you know, unassembled if they didn't do something about it before Christmas morning. So if Christmas morning was going to include celebrating this family present of a brand new pool table, it had to be put together. So you get uh, three men together in the house, uh, ranging in age from somewhere around 14 to somewhere around 45 or so collaborating on putting together, you know, a fairly complex, you know, piece of recreational equipment, you can imagine the tension level was through the roof. So we took advantage of that opportunity to go on a drive. And it really wasn't 
a four-month gap between when we met and when I heard from her. We went on a date again, a double date this time on New Year's Eve. And a few a few weeks after that, I got a phone call because she had called me to express interest about a friend of hers who was interested in whether I was going out with anybody. And yeah, I got to tell you, in my head, I was still kind of in a place where this was a friend's girlfriend. And there's sort of a line there. So even if you've noticed the individual and made a mental note of this is a, this is a very exciting young woman, you don't really do anything about it. Because even though that friend of mine were not that close, and it wasn't going to be the end of the world to me if, if that relationship between me and him was destroyed over me going out with the girl that he had been going out with, I wasn't seeking it out. I wasn't looking for trouble. But when she called me at my house and I heard her voice and heard her identify herself, the first thought I had in my head was, well, this is, this is fantastic because this is maybe more, more what I wanted than I even knew what I wanted. At that moment in time, I'm listening to her voice on the phone, and I had not repressed the idea of the two of us ever going out. And I began thinking of the idea of the two of us going out well before I actually got the gist of what she was saying, that a friend of hers was interested instead. Well, there were lots of reasons why I wasn't interested in going out with a friend of hers. First, not attracted to her, certainly not comparatively. Her friend had made a very bad mistake in suggesting that my wife call me because the comparison was there, it was unmistakable, and, and it was a non-starter. But the other thing kind of going through my head at that moment in time was that if she and I were going to go out, I was going to have to deal with some stuff first. I was going to have to at least address the issue with this other guy. I was going to have to clear a few hurdles to make that happen. And so between December and then New Year's Eve and then January, it literally was end of March and April and all the way really into May before the relationship began. I bring it up, not because it's important to the concept of inappropriate conversations, not because there's anything inherent in my relationship that's that um, special to anybody other than me, or that it's important that it be special to anybody other than me. I bring it up because of how important it is for us to be in touch with our origins. What a difference it made for those people who were in Canaan, who had gone as Hebrew people through the wilderness, those who remembered eating manna, and remembered their grumbling before they had that sort of steady diet of food, fared better than those who began eating from the hand of the cultures that they were surrounded by, who forgot who they were. And, you know, this man who wrote this, what I consider to be very provocative and interesting, and not that, not anywhere near far off my points of view about uh, myself also feeling like a Christian who's tired of Christianity being misinterpreted. Talking about his two divorces. I don't know how you get to two divorces. I don't know how you get there unless at some point along the way, there was something false about the origin of those relationships, or that one or both of the parties forgot the origins of those relationships. You know, I've had the experience in my life of having someone who was close to me deal with Alzheimer's, and that leaves an impression on you that makes what I already have as a heightened sensitivity toward memory, even more important that it's one thing to lose your memory because that's in your nature of who you are, that you, maybe you're just naturally forgetful. So you've lived your life that way and you're used to it. This of course doesn't describe me at all. My memory serves me far too well, but I've also seen people who for medical reasons have had their memories taken away from them in a way that is not consistent with who they are, that maybe they aren't naturally that forgetful. And to be honest, with this particular disease, nobody is naturally that forgetful. It's an act of violence. 
It's a physically devastating event. But it would almost take something like that for me to say, yes, I'm going to forget what the Holy Spirit has done for me. I'm going to forget direct, real answers to prayer at the moment that they were needed the most and the impact of that. Or that I'm going to forget what it means to be 16 years old and meeting a girl for the first time and then later dating that girl for the first time and have that girl be my wife. It's not about what happened yesterday or today. What happened yesterday or today is part of a continuum that goes back all the way to the beginning. When we share, she and I, our, our memories of before we met, it's ironic how our paths had been snaking around and mirroring each other even before that, that meeting on that Christmas Eve, that we both had moved from other states to the city that we lived in, and that during the time that we first lived in our first houses, we were rival high schools in bordering school districts where we might have seen each other at ball games or at parades or at other events. And then at a certain point, my parents moved from one side of town to the other side of town, um, trying to get to the nice side of town, where literally the shops and restaurants that were within a mile of where I lived in the, in the first house we moved to had been replaced by um, adult bookstores and adult movie theaters and you know, strip joints, and they just wanted to move away from all of that. And in the process of doing it, my wife shares with me that you know, her family moved at about the same time and went from being in one border rival school district on the east side of, of our major city to us being in two different school districts again, border rival school districts on the south side of the city that we lived in. And the families in each case for their own reasons – uh, independent of any influence that we're aware of, kind of moving together, that made this chance meeting in some ways inevitable. Now, I know that there's a lot of people, friends of mine, in fact, who don't believe in forever and who don't believe in inevitability and who don't have the same definition of faith that I do, who would very openly and you know congenially tell me that to them, faith can't possibly be a knowledge. But you know what? To me, faith is a knowledge. It's not a knowledge that I have. It's a knowledge that God has, and it's in these things where I can't help to see his hand at play, and I can't imagine anyone taking that message and using any hateful distinction, a distinction based on religious belief, a distinction based on race or ethnicity, a distinction based on sexual orientation, and drawing a line there and trying to attack people. With that very distinction, it gets even worse when it's a politically based distinction. And how ironic that this uh, list that we read through earlier that isn't just the religious conservatives, uh, Pat Robertson and uh, James Dobson, but also the political conservatives as well, which is where I would lump Sarah Palin and Ralph Reed. Those people who presume to represent Christianity don't necessarily share my particular set of values because we have a different understanding of the definitions of terms like faithfulness and eternity. I've got a different math. I got a mathematical formula that says where 16 equals forever, because I assume that it's both meaningful and true to assume that it's possible for 16 to equal forever. And perhaps that has a lot to do with why my relationship has remained strong in ways that other people's relationships have faltered because they're not interested in the beginning. They've lost track of the given and the only thing meaningful in the math that they're doing is the line above it and the line below it.
I've mentioned before that a lot of times with different drummers, I've strived to try to find a connection between the topic I'm dealing with and who that individual is. That it's not just an individual that has made an impression on me and not just somebody who has gone their own way, blazed their own trail, this march to the beat of a different drummer idea, but that I also like the different drummer to have some kind of a connection. How do you connect a different drummer to this concept of the critical importance, the almost mystical importance of the origin of relationships. And I really, really struggled with it because it doesn't do me much good to put my parents out there as a different drummer because both my parents and my wife's parents had committed relationships, took that till death do us part idea very seriously and very literally. But when you look at people that we might describe as celebrities, it's awfully hard to find anyone with much credibility, and it's hard to trust even those who are seem to be in, in a good place, that, that it's not impossible for a Hollywood marriage or a rock star marriage um, or even, for that matter, you know, an, an academia marriage to have these kinds of qualities that, that I represent, somebody who has a relationship that I think in some ways looks like mine, but it's awfully hard to do. And so in the process of kind of doing the research and thinking my way through these things, I just said, well, let, let me go fictional then. Let me go with fictional character because that's safe. Because whatever the fictional character is written on the page is essentially fixed in that point and going to remain true. And you don't have to worry about the movement. And the number one fictional character that came up to me as being an example of this was ironically a fictional character who was about to you know, essentially leave a boyfriend at the altar and change directions by engaging in a new relationship. And I thought of the, um, the Family Ties episode, my absolute favorite sitcom two-part episode of all time. It's too big of a statement to pick any one favorite sitcom episode. Part of the reason is that sitcom as an art form is a fairly low form of art. It isn't necessarily impressive to be the best sitcom episode, at least I wouldn't think. But the two-part episode gives me a couple of distinctions. It gives me an out. It means that I don't have to answer to anything that I really, truly love from what the Seinfeld series did or the Friends series or MASH, any of the game changers. I can ignore the history of TV, in fact, and only look at television made during the span of time that I was in a relationship with my wife. And the one that jumps out at me is Family Ties. And uh, right at the beginning of season four, a two-part episode called The Real Thing, and in there, um, the... Alex P. Keaton character kind of falls in love for the very first time. And as a college student thinks that he's going to engage in this relationship by uh, just going by the numbers, you know, pick a girl out of the yearbook, go charm her, meet her, live happily ever after that. He didn't have any sense of the magic for want of a better word. He had not allowed uh, love itself to, to provide any chance in encounters. And of course, in the plot of the story, the girl's roommate is the one that actually catches his eye. And it was that character, Ellen Reed, that I thought, you know, that episode meant something to me. My wife and I were talking about it as I was kind of thinking my way through this and how to describe this and what she remembers, and her memory is perhaps not quite as strong as mine. What she remembers from the two-part episode was Alex and Ellen dancing together at the school dance that neither one of them were really invited to on their own steam. She was there to serve um, punch and he was there with his girlfriend that he was, you know, growing quickly, very tired of. I don't remember that as well. What I remember is the scenes in the train stations with Alex being unable to share his feelings with her and then later figuring out in desperation how to do it, both because those scenes were, you know, comic, you know, Family Ties is a sitcom, 
the comedy is important, but also because those scenes were incredibly emotionally dramatic. It is very hard for me to watch those two episodes today, particularly the second part. But the first part, I think, has got all the crucial setup to it without having an emotional response. But then it occurred to me that maybe the emotional response is not necessarily the character of Ellen Reed. Really, maybe. If you really think about it, it has a lot to do with this actress that initially was not on my short list of different drummers. When I started writing up, not just what I wanted to do for this particular episode of Inappropriate Conversations, but the Inappropriate Conversations concept to begin with, where it was really easy to jot down a lot of the names that I've already spoken of in previous shows. Now, I want to speak today about a different drummer as Tracy Pollan. Now, there's a couple of really great reasons to cite Tracy Pollan as a different drummer in this particular show about faithfulness and the beginnings of relationships. Um, one is this Ellen Reed character and her contact with Michael J. Fox as an actor when she was a guest star on a show where he was essentially the king of the world. Now, there's a lot of things about family ties I liked. I was a big fan of Meredith Baxter Burney. I think she hit exactly the right notes in terms of what a sitcom mom in that era needed to be. Um, perfect in every conceivable way from my perspective. But Alex uh, was the, the main character, and so Michael J. Fox was the star of the show. And this particular season, this fourth season, had come after the release of Back to the Future. So Michael J. Fox had gone from being relatively unknown, if not completely unknown, to a TV star based on family ties, to now a movie star, and in, in the case of Back to the Future, a movie star in what was the film. In his memoir, um, Lucky Man, released in 2002, uh, Michael J. Fox talks about coming back to the set that season, already feeling like he was kind of the king of the world, that he, he could have his way. Uh, at one point, he went and got Woody Harrelson off the set of Cheers because they had a relationship with each other. They were friends and talked the crew into shooting the scenes where the little sister, the Tina Yothers character, was actually played by Woody Harrelson, reading all of those lines, including a scene that they were supposed to shoot that day where she was sitting on the dad's lap. So you have Woody Harrelson sitting on Michael Gross's lap, reading their lines. Um, just that kind of comic, almost you know, practical joke sort of an approach is the kinds of stuff that Michael J. Fox was going to get away with because he was essentially on top of his game. And if you can imagine that distance between being, again, a relatively unknown actress, guest starring in this in this role, in really a, a particularly tricky initial role. If you look at that and say, this is the first time these two have been on screen together, this two-part episode called The Real Thing, it's incredibly impressive, the amount of chemistry and the shifts that seem seamless between comedy and drama. And to me, the, the cheering that sort of happens inside me when it ends as it does, and they're going to be together. Now, she was only with the show for the one season, and I'll kind of hint at some of the reasons why before I'm done. But I wanted to share from Michael J. Fox's memoir, From Lucky Man, his account of one of the scenes that they shot together early on in their collaboration, because I think that it kind of says a lot about her character and a lot about the kind of things that I think you know make these original meetings these originating moments, so important. Here's Michael J. Fox. One day, about four weeks into the season, Tracy and I were rehearsing a scene where we, and we broke for lunch. By now, we'd struck up a friendship and spent a lot of time on the set talking, getting to know each other, but we tended to go our own way during the lunch break. That day, Tracy had spent hers in an Italian restaurant. After lunch, we picked up where we'd left off. 
Alex, answering a knock at the door of the Keaton's living room, opening it to reveal Tracy. That moment, she said her first line, I detected a hint of garlic and sensed an opportunity to have a little fun at her expense. Whoa, a little scampy for lunch, babe. At first, she said nothing. Her expression didn't even change, but before long it became clear that my remark had surprised and hurt her. Here I was, a fellow actor whom she was just learning to trust and maybe beginning to like, and I had ambushed her with my insensitivity. Looking me dead in the eye, she said slowly and evenly in a voice that was too quiet for anyone else to hear, that was mean and rude, and you were a complete... I'll let you fill in the blanks. She unloaded both barrels on him, calling him some very choice names. I was floored. Nobody talked to me that way. Not lately, anyway. This woman was completely unintimidated, unimpressed by whomever I thought I was, and even less by whom everyone else thought I was. A pig is a pig, no matter how many hit movies he'd just had. I felt a rush of blood redden my face. I was overwhelmed by an emotion I was surprised to discover was something other than anger. I wasn't pissed off. I realized I was smitten. I apologized. She accepted. We got back to work. And the scampy incident was never mentioned again. At the beginning of the Alex-Ellen relationship, Alex falls for Ellen hard, only to learn that she is engaged and leaving school to get married. Devastated, he pursues her to the railway station, where she is preparing to board her train and leave his life forever. While funny as a scene, as written by Michael Whitehorn, it was also tender and emotional. In the hands of an actress less capable than Tracy, it might have been overplayed to the point of sappiness. During the taping, I can remember momentarily losing the sense that I was actually in the scene myself, and instead just watching her, as captivated as the rest of the audience. My reverie couldn't last, though, because working with Tracy demanded an attention and a degree of honesty from Alex that I hadn't felt pressed to reach for in the first three seasons. That scene, like every scene I've ever played with Tracy, pushed me to be better than I'd ever been before. Those are the words of Michael J. Fox at, the, at meeting Tracy Pollan and some of his initial acting with her. She didn't stay with the series Family Ties, despite the fact that she was offered... Uh, for her role to continue. Instead, she chose to go back to New York, which is where she's from, born in the, the very early 1960s on Long Island, because I think she felt a need to be better grounded than that and outside of the Hollywood system to uh, as much a degree as possible. That is consistent with what would happen when they met again later on the set of Bright Lights Big City and started dating. And when they decided how to handle their marriage, they decided intentionally not to be a Hollywood couple and to do everything in their power to have a relationship that was outside of the celebrity spotlights. Now, like all couples, very difficult to stay away from the Access Hollywood equivalent of the what we would call the paparazzi today. And that was true in um, Michael J. Fox's descriptions of their wedding and some of the bizarre events that accompanied that. Simply the uh, tabloid talk show equivalent, I guess, would be the way I would describe it. But this was a very good thing, because as everyone knows by now, Michael J. Fox uh, developed Parkinson's disease. And at the time that he wrote these memoirs, he um, two books, in fact, he was kind of sharing what those experiences were like. So a couple of things that I'd like to bring up. One, from Michael J. Fox's own interviews, he said pretty clearly that, you know, Parkinson's is a devastating disease and that it's not the kind of thing you'd wish on anyone. But 
if someone had offered him the opportunity to erase the last 10 plus years of his life and to not have Parkinson's as a, as an issue, as, as a burden to bear or as a, as an ailment to deal with, that he wouldn't for one second make that trade, that something about having this particular problem has led him to be more invested in his family and more committed with his wife than he otherwise might have been able to achieve if he had been on a different path. Uh, if he had been pursuing a different set of goals based on what you would traditionally see from a big name Hollywood actor. And uh, he says there's certain benefits that he cherishes from the fact that he's had to deal with this thing. But I don't know that his reaction would be the same if it weren't for Tracy Pollan, because pretty much her reaction by all accounts at hearing kind of the diagnosis and what they were dealing with was that she took her wedding vows very seriously. She took the relationship very seriously. And then she was more than willing to, to play that sickness and health until death do us part card and to live their lives that way. This is the kind of thing you don't typically see. A lot of people are um, in relationships that are only committed to the sense that they're looking for the bigger, better deal. That's one thing. If you're a high school kid and you're dating, you're trying to find what your your tastes and preferences truly are. It's a completely different thing, though, once you've committed yourself in marriage. And a lot of times people today don't take that marriage piece as seriously as they should. But Tracy Pollan does. And I do. And my wife does. And the characters that she's played on television, by and large, also do. That she's found a way to be a wife, a mother, and an actress and represent these very values that I'm trying to talk about today that you know, kind of honor this notion of origins, that they've got a life path they've traveled, where the very first scenes they've ever appeared in on, on the screen or on stage together as actors, as peers, have been captured and time-capsuled and put out for all of us to see. All of us who watched most every episode of Family Ties have seen the first meeting of these two actors in the embodiment of those two characters in what I think is perhaps, again, the best dramatic sitcom episode I've ever seen. Netflix streaming, which is uh, you know widely available in the United States, has just taken the entire seven-season run of Family Ties and put it into their, their streaming package. So you don't necessarily need to buy the entire box set to get season four of Family Ties. You don't have to send off for a rental and get a disc back. You can just go online and stream these things now. Uh, they hadn't been readily available before on anything like Hulu. So this is a big moment. Um, I would encourage anyone who can't remember or who hasn't seen the first couple of episodes of season four of Family Ties just to watch. I mean, maybe I'm suffering from nostalgia. Uh, I offer that caveat often enough, and it's probably true. But you know what? In some ways, that being in touch with nostalgia, that sense of origin, is a lot of what I'm talking about today. It's certainly a quality that embodies Tracy Pollan and makes her uh, a different drummer. And it's also a lot of the things that have kept me in touch with the true nature of my Christian faith in the midst of all the noise. And has kept my relationship um, secure from the noise that happens in the world. Because I remember what it's like to be at the very beginning of this path. And I remember what I meant when I said what forever was for.
there are, of course, more stories I could tell. But there's a fine line there between when you share something that your wife would not want you to share <laughs> and when you share something that needs to be understood to carry a conversation forward. There'll be a point when I discuss perhaps in greater detail some of the things that have happened in my Christian walk or some of the things that have happened in my relationship with my wife or my family that this might be a good foundation for. It's going to take me some time to figure out where beyond this particular circle, how far out to draw that next circle. In the meantime, if you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and show notes are enabled for comments on the website at HTTP colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. It's been a while since I've done a, a your points and questions show. But if there's anything you'd like to share that uh, I can share with others, please make that distinction for me so that I know whether what you're writing to me is between us, entre nous, as the saying goes, or whether what you're saying is part of this broader conversation. Thanks for listening.